Domestic abuse, school shootings, mass killings, ethno-political conflict, genocide, terrorism and war. Peace psychology is the study of the mental processes that lead to conflict and how that knowledge can be used in a positive way. In this series, Peace in Mind, we'll be exploring the breadth of peace and conflict psychology. So conflict and peace are, yeah, definitely not to be associated with badness and goodness, evil and good. <laughs> I'm Kim Stewart. And I'm Linda Rose. We're your hosts for this series. Peace in Mind is produced in the studios of 4EB Brisbane with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. Madness is understood to be an imbalance between the individual and the natural environment, or between an entire tribe or a people and its natural environment. You've been listening to Theodore Rodak, anarchist, philosopher and eco-psychologist. Today on Peace in Mind, we look at the environment. Environmental resources are often a point of conflict between nations. But on a more philosophical level, some psychologists believe that increased contact with and appreciation of nature can contribute to increasing compassion and peace. Kim talked to Dr. Susan Burke from the Australian Psychological Society Public Interest Team, who has a special focus on environmental issues and disaster response. She has also been involved in Psychologists for Peace and found parallels in all the public interest areas the Australian Psychological Society work on. I'm still involved in all the other issues that we cover in the public interest team, like asylum seeker and refugee issues and indigenous issues and homelessness and human rights and things like that. And it provides a, you know, there's, there's underlying themes that run through all of them that are, that are very common. Explain to the listeners what, what input psychologists could have into the issue of climate change. It must seem like something that's like very far apart from what psychologists are conceived to be active in. I think people are often a bit surprised when I say I work in climate change and the environment <clears throat> and I'm a psychologist. And I guess there's three main reasons why I think psychology is so relevant to questions of climate change. The first is that the, um, the causes of the current moment are you know, through scientific consensus, largely agreed to be through human behaviour. Mm. And uh, as experts in human behaviour, therefore psychologists have a, a very salient part to play in helping us, the humans on the planet, to understand how our behaviour is um, causing and driving climate change and how we need to change that behaviour. And we also know as psychologists that changing behaviour is not easy to do. And so there's a large research and evidence base around how to help people to change their behaviour that we can contribute to to the debate um, and to the challenges. And when I talk about changing behaviour, I'm not just talking about changing individuals' behaviour, but also changing group behaviour, organisational behaviour, political, social movements as well. So psychology does have a long history, 40, 50 years of research into these issues that are all very relevant. And then the second reason um, is that uh, climate change has an enormous psychosocial impact on humans. So whilst it 
um, has a, an enormous negative impact on biodiversity and other species. It also does have a human impact that's both physical, affects humans' physical health, but also psychosocial and affects our mental health as well in a number of ways. So obviously there are the direct impacts when you know we have <clears throat> increased um, frequency and intensity of extreme weather events that you know, can cause great harm to humans, human settlements. But there are also the indirect um, stresses, psychosocial impacts as well, that we might experience when we live in an area that has climate-dependent industry. For example, you know, wheat farms in drought-stricken parts of the country, or we live in the Torres Strait where we're subjected to uh, tidal flooding on a more regular basis that threatens our homes and threatens the places that we live. <clears throat> or if the economy in our local area is um, impacted through the climate impacts or through the shortage of resources or the increasing costs of power or oil or, or what have you, that, that also then has an indirect impact on the um, economic and environmental determinants of mental health, of which you know, social scientists know a lot. And then the third way in which uh, climate change impacts on our psychosocial and, and well-being and mental health is through the vicarious impact. So watching the suffering of people in Bangladesh who have been flooded from their homes and watching uh, people in the Maldives being threatened by rising sea levels and despairing or feeling upset about the speed at which world governments engage and pass sort of sensible laws to mitigate, to curb our emissions and to, you know, do something proactive about it. And those have a serious um, impact on many people's overall sense of well-being and, and trust in the world that they live in. The revolution will be industrial We charge like the battle of Bathsheba and Alice spoil And didn't you know it's all combustible We got born again greens just because it's tax deductible I'm optimistic but the toxicity is buoyant And now you lift your finger in response but just the point And that's the quickest way to disappoint Maybe you miss the point This is way bigger than a list of joint We can spruik credentials no matter how inconsequential We treat it like essential I could sacrifice a non-essential for myself Environmental anything outside of this is accidental Slogans are they mantra We can't look to government and industry for answers They only got a golden handshake and a plan to abandon a ship Way before we deal with the cancer This is an emergency They held back the tech Shit. Now it's gotten hectic They can't deflect it Not like it's unexpected Aussie kids dying at the tyrant's directive In the dust of the cradle of civilization The Middle East was once well vegetated Now check out Australia A fragile equation Even the Anglican church says that A terrorist invasion is not the real issue If you're waiting for an end to floods and drought Here's the tissue The Nats will dismiss you And pray for a solution Shame there's no neighbour to blame for the pollution At least there's absolution And carbon Credits. It begins and ends at home if we let it I let it to your MP, sign the petition We're waiting on you, man, to make the hard decisions This is an emergency
Disease would swell, disease be rife So I become dust to dust become life as we know it And you denied it And yet you told me you had a plan And you told me Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ in the Community Radio Network. Today we are talking to Dr. Susie Burke, a psychologist who focuses on environmental issues. We've also been hearing a song called Emergency by The Herd. There's one area where I see there are great parallels with the environment movement and the peace movement. If you think to the 80s when the nuclear threat was so huge and again this was a threat that was um, largely in the hands of world governments, mm. big um, forces <laughs> uh, that the humans um, on the ground were trying to um, push against. And the dread of things going wrong was huge and did have a huge psychosocial toll on people who were engaged with the issues at the time. And many of my uh, colleagues and cohorts were teenagers at the time and there have often been parallels made between those that were teenagers at the time when the nuclear threat was one that people were anxious about and fighting against and and the threat today of climate change which again is a big complex issue and that would bring me to another (laughs) parallel between um, peace and the environment which is these are really big complex problems Climate change often gets referred to as a wicked problem, which is one uh, that is large and complex and where the solutions are not simple and where the solutions often lead to further cascading problems. So we have to be so so careful about the solutions that we do come up with. But the other parallel that I think is really interesting is that to solve climate change and to solve peace and conflict requires cooperative solutions. So... Climate change uh, can only be solved by us and others in the world taking, um, doing things to curb our emissions. And the, whilst the impacts of climate change for many of us who are fortunate enough to live in a you know, first world developed country are not necessarily immediate and we will, can imagine perhaps rightly so, that we will be buffered from quite of the negative impacts because of the wealth of the country in which we live and the good infrastructure that we have inherited or that we are still creating. Um, Nonetheless, we are very interconnected with the actions of people all around the world in terms of the extent to which they can, we all continue to emit or curb our emissions. And it requires all of us to take responsibility for curbing emissions in order for this problem to be fully solved and for us to get back below 350 parts per million to, to, of um, you know carbon dioxide concentrates in the atmosphere in order to have a safe climate for all species and, and all generations. And so similarly with resolving a violent dispute anywhere, it requires a cooperative solution between more than one player and that's a a commonality between these two issues.
work is done in the context of big passions. You know, people are really passionate about these issues and people are passionate on, uh, you know, a few sides <laughs> of, the, of the issue as well. So that there are those passionate who are... Passionate deniers as well. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And whilst they might be very small in number and I, it's probably worth pointing out that three of most robust um, representative surveys that have been done of Australians, Americans and um, people in the UK's public perceptions of climate change have all shown in the last couple of years that the true number of people who are, are truly sceptical about human-caused climate change is around 5-6% of the population. So they're a noisy, passionate, but very small minority mm. of people who uh, who do take that truly sceptical position, which is not necessarily how the media portrays it. You're listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ and the Community Radio Network.
You've been listening to a song by non-bossy posse called Planet. On Peace in Mind, we're talking about the environment. Kim also spoke to lifelong peace and environmental activist Robin Taubenfeld, whose vision for peace is much broader than stopping wars. There's another level of conflict in the world, isn't there, that, that brings the whole environment and social justice in, in a way that, that wars don't. Yeah, and I think it's very cleverly masked. We're here, we're, we're living in, in the first world, so it's harder for us to see mm. the um, exploitation that's taking place every day and the suffering that's taking place every day. And even um, in our own country, we see uh, a lot of desecration taking place but it is often remote, such as uranium mines or coal mines. Mm. People are given incentive to accept the risks, good pay, nice housing, good facilities, or promised um, some benefit to accept the risk, a uh, future for their children, an education system. Uh, and so people are always in a position of bartering what should be their right to, uh, if it's First Peoples of Australia, to uh, practice their culture on a pristine, uninterrupted, uh, pristine, protected environment, uh, or even if it's people in remote communities or people in urban cities, the right to clean air and water and health and education for our children, we're forced to uh, make a barter that will accept a certain amount of risk, uh, desecration and pollution to enjoy the supposed amenities that the state and the corporation are offering us. And in the case of Bangladesh, outright violence towards other people. I think those conflicts are resolvable, but I think we need a whole of system change. We spend a lot of time working on putting out small fires, stopping a coal mine, coal train, working on getting the bus route saved, the de amalgamation of a school or um, a uranium mine, and we are caught up. Even if it's the workers' rights in our state or in Pakistan or wherever it is, that we are constantly bombarded with issues and problems and it's easy for us to be caught up in the fire and not look at the bigger picture and work at a resolution for the whole picture, which is a complete change to the way we're living now or the course we're on. The course that it, capitalism, despite all the rhetoric that we're going to be equal and we're free and we're individuals, is based on people not being equal and not being free and really only being individualistic enough to think as long as they fit into the system. Doesn't create, doesn't want to create individuals that will challenge the system or dismantle the system. And the system we're on, uh, for all its talk, can't deliver ecological and social justice to communities or the planet. So while we say we need to um, advance other states, we do need to allow a quality of life for everybody on the planet that is fair, but we don't really 
all need to live like my friends and my family uh, think is normal in the United States or even here in Australia. We have a very high expectation of material wealth or affluence that nowhere else in the world is, can enjoy. And it's not sustainable. And I don't want to deny other people of the world the right to enjoy what we enjoy. But if we changed our system, we wouldn't need all the things or we wouldn't need to work in the same way. It may sound a bit airy-fairy, but if we went back to building communities and sharing, how many people on my street need to have a lawnmower? Why can't we share our lawnmowers? How many people do we do need to have a car if we were sharing our cars? How many people need to pay for childcare if we were cooperatively looking after our children as a community? And so we need to model these visions of delivering wealth, and I mean wealth and spiritual wealth, as well as physical wealth, uh, to people and communities that still respect the planet and allow us to survive without uh, destroying the planet. I think we may be the only creatures that are self-harming. Robin Taubin felt lifelong peace and environmental activist. You're listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ and the Community Radio Network. Dr. Eleanor Wertheim conducts mediation and conflict resolution at the UN. She talks about how she approaches international conflicts based on environmental resources. Okay. So, you've asked about how uh, a dispute over water might be dealt with if you have two countries uh, that are in dispute over water. And it's actually an interesting, you've asked that question because we do use that example often uh, in the uh, in the program. I think that one of the up-and-coming, um, one of the up-and-coming sources of disputes in, in the future is probably going to be water. Because as water becomes more and more scarce, it can become a real source of dispute. And it can become a source of dispute in a number of different ways. One of the ways is if you have two countries, um, for example, in the Asia-Pacific region, often we have two countries that have overlapping um, water that they both think are belong to their country um, because of the proximity to the country. And so there, there are disputes that happen about that. There also can be disputes about uh, lakes that are shared in common, water where a river is starting from higher up and one country gets the origins of the water and then uh, another country gets it farther down. So if the country up top is using it for damming and getting power, the country at the bottom can't get the water because it's blocked. Um, So what we would do with different countries is we would, in this case, we would take representatives and figure out who the most appropriate representatives would be for the negotiations. Uh, and then we help them through mediation potentially to uh, talk about it and figure out what are the different needs that the different parties have for the water. And what we often try to do is help people to move from what are called positions, which are the initial solutions that people see to the water, such as if it's a, it's a lake, Um, One side may say, well, the lake should belong to us and we should be able to do whatever we want with it. Um, 
to what are the needs and what are the interests and what are the concerns behind it. So if we look at it at, the, at that deeper level of what are the needs and concerns, we ask, what do you want to do with the water? So for a lake, for example, there may be needs for fishing, which is for the economy. There may be needs for um, power or resources. It may be needs for transport. And so when you think about that, you start thinking about, well, let's brainstorm it and come up with as many possible options as we can to meet the needs for both parties for transport, for the economy, for um, power, and so on. And solutions can come up that include joint efforts between the diff two different sides or two different parties about let's have a mutual project, and it can come up with alternative ways of meeting energy needs, transport needs, fishing resources needs, and so on. And so what we'll do is we'll help people sit down and think through how to get beyond the positions and the initial solutions to what are the needs and the concerns behind it so everybody can have their needs met. And so disputes usually start with one, each side thinking, if I get my needs met, that's the most important thing. If they get ne their needs met, it means I get less of mine. And so it's either or and it's comp competition. So what we try to do is shift it to a cooperative sort of thinking about how can we both have our needs met. Let's really think about that and come up with really creative ways of doing that. And we do it through having the parties talk with each other. And we also often do it through encouraging them to see what other solutions have been done elsewhere. So people may go, uh, people who are involved in a dispute may go and visit other countries and the mediator might encourage that. Why don't we go to another country which has solved this problem and see how they did it? And why don't we get some solutions that others have found? And so really generating lots of creative solutions and looking at precedents and other ways of, uh, of solving the problem. Dr. Eleanor Wertheim discussing how to resolve international conflicts based on environmental resources. On the next episode of Peace in Mind, War, what it does to people and what psychology has to say about it. That's it for this edition of Peace in Mind. Thanks for listening. Peace in Mind is produced for the Community Radio Network with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. Theme and background music by Jandy Rainbow, unisonicascension.com. Series producers Kim Stewart, Linda Rose and Nathan Renault. You can find out more about the topics we cover by going to facebook.com slash peaceinmindproject. Do we believe? that human beings are bonded to this planet in a way that would allow us to invoke trust, love, respect, reciprocity as positive motivations for becoming good environmental citizens. Are we not bonded to this planet by something which is life-enhancing and life-affirming and which we can appeal to people to find within themselves a voice of the earth which speaks to them with a sense of love, respect, and trust?